As we continue our study in the book of John, we've come to John chapter 7, beginning in verse 25. This morning we'll be looking at verses 25 through 39, if you would would join with with me as we read that, that section. John 7, 25. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? With reference to Jesus. But look, he, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. And then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I'm from? And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? And the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. And then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks? And teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said? You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. I saw an illustration from Kent Hughes in his commentary on this section, and it came from C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair. The Silver Chair is a a book in the series, The uh, the Chronicles of, of Narnia. And so I went back to the silver chair book and read what, um, what he was talking about there. And as you know, in the Chronicles of Narnia, you may not know, but many of you know, there's Aslan the lion. And the lion is there, and, and C.S. Lewis just brilliantly uses him as this picture of Christ um, throughout the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, the picture that Scripture gives us where Christ is referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah and so there's this picture of, the, of this lion. And in this particular book, The Silver Chair, there's this section in which there's this, this girl, Jill, who's running from the lion. And she's running, and, and is just as, as scared as, as she could possibly be. Um, she gets to a, a place where she's... His thirst, her thirst, it's, we're told, became so bad that she almost felt that she would not be, she would, might, would not mind being eaten by the lion if she could only 
get a mouthful of water first. And so she's there and she's, she's running, she's thirsty, and she hears the, the sound of a stream in the distance. Um, she goes and she's carefully walking towards that stream. And she's so thirsty, she sees the water, but she just freezes. As she's looking at the, as she's looking at the stream, she sees this lion. And the lion is, is, is there, and she says that the lion and her met eyes. They, he looked directly at her, so there was no doubt in her mind that the lion saw her. And the lion sees her and says, if you're thirsty, you may drink. And she's so frightened but she's so thirsty. There's no other water anywhere around, and um, you can empathize with her if you can think of a time in your life where you're just as thirsty as thirsty can be. So the lion says again, are you thirsty? And Jill responds by saying, I'm dying of thirst. Then drink, said the lion. May I, Jill says? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Jill says, will, will you promise not to do anything to me if I, if I do come? The lion says, I make no promise. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a, a step nearer to the water. Do you eat girls? She says. The lion responds by saying, I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. The lion says, then you'll die of thirst. Oh dear, said Jill, as she comes another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. The lion says, there is no other stream. And from there, C.S. Lewis says, it never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream. She knelt down and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. Before she tasted it, she had been intending to make a dash away from the lion the moment she had finished. Now she realized that this would be, on the whole, the most dangerous thing of all. And she got up, stood there with her lips still wet from drinking. And the lion said, 
come here. You look at this and, and what an incredible picture given there of our Lord. The lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. A lion that, that is so fierce that who could not fear him? And yet, we need to go unto him, to this, this fountain of living waters that would make it so that we would never thirst again. We come in, in, in the Gospel of John to a section that shows Jesus there speaking to the people in the temple at the time of the festival, the Feast of, of Tabernacles. And they're there, and, and we go through this section of Scripture, and, and John is writing to us as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit just to present Christ as, as God, to present Christ as our Savior, to present Christ as the one who is the fountain of living waters that we can run to, and he's such that we would never thirst again if we would just drink from him. But there's those that are there, and they hate him. There's those that are there that, that want him dead. And so in verse 25, we're told that some from Jerusalem said, as Jesus is there, is this not he whom they seek to kill? Isn't this Christ? Isn't this Jesus, the one that the religious leaders desire to kill? But look, he speaks boldly. He's, he's saying what, whatever he wants to say. And, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers indeed, do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? Jesus is there. He's speaking. He's saying whatever he wants. The people are looking, saying, do the rulers think that this is the Christ? Now imagine being amongst the people there. You, you hear Christ speaking. And these that are there are looking, thinking, all we care about really is what do the rulers think? What do the religious rulers think? What do the Pharisees think? What do the Sadducees think? What do the scribes think? What, what do they think of him? Do they think that he's the Christ? They're so influenced by the religious leaders rather than looking to Christ and to all the prophecies that had been given to point the people to Christ. In verse 27 it says, However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he's from. This was what some people thought during that time. They're looking at Christ, and he's there, and they're saying, he can't be the Christ. We know where he's from. We know that his father's Joseph. We know that his mother's Mary. We know that he is from Nazareth. We know these things. He can't be the Christ, because if he were the Christ, nobody would know. He would just show up. Nobody would know where he was from. And yet... Many did know that they were supposed to know where he's from. In Matthew 2, 3, it says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And, and when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They, they knew they knew, like, he is supposed to come from Bethlehem. He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And the people knew that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. 
This prophecy is reiterated in Micah 5.2 as well. So the people are falsely informed that we're not to know where he's from, and some knew, but they still didn't care. In verse 28, it says, Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me and know where I'm from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. Here he's, he's speaking to these people, and those that study this section believe that, that Jesus in this section is, is using irony here, and he's ridiculing the idea that they knew him. You, you think that you know me? You think that you know where I'm from? Here they are, they're saying all of these things, and Jesus directs his words directly to them. I've not come of myself, but him who sent me is true, whom you do not know. You don't know the one who sent me. You don't know where I'm from. I'm from heaven. I'm from my heavenly father. He sent me, and you don't know him. But I know him, verse 29, for I am from him, and he sent me. I know him. This is radical when you think of this setting and what's taking place. He's there in the temple. He's speaking. There's all these people. They're all questioning who he is and and what the religious leaders think. And the religious leaders are there listening to him speak. And all they can think is, we want to kill him. We want him killed. We want to put him to death as soon as possible. I mean, just rage that's going on inside them. And others are looking saying, who is he? We don't know. What do they think? What should we think? Well, Jesus, in reference to God the Father, I know him. I'm from him. He sent me. Verse 30 says, Therefore they sought to take him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. I look at that and I just think the lion there by the the stream, by the river. Don't you picture that? He's there and, 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 and they hate him and they want to put him to death, but... The Holy Spirit inspires John to write, they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. I, I, I see that and I just see power, just power. There's no question as far as who is in control in these circumstances. It's not the religious leaders. It's not the people who are the most wealthy. It's not the people that have the most influence. It's God. It's Christ himself that is totally and completely in control in these circumstances. Think of Daniel there in the lion's den. And what happens? They're, the lion's mouths are, are shut. They would love to devour him, but they can't. Their mouths are shut. You, you, you think of those that throw that threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace, and, and yet throwing him, them into the fiery furnace a furnace that's so hot that it kills the people that throw them in. And yet, if it's not their time, they're not going to die. God's a control. I find great comfort in that because we live in a society in a time in which there's very little that feels secure. Very little. You go and... and you just don't know what's going to happen on a plane or in a car. 
go to the doctor and you don't know physically what's going to happen. You go to Disneyland and you don't know if you're going to get the measles. You can't even go to the happiest place on earth without worrying about measles. Many of us may have a tendency to become anxious about things. You're, you're, you're so worried about what might happen, not only to you, but maybe even more so towards your family members. And yet to, to read passages like this, therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. I mean, these guys are they're filled with rage. He just said, I know the Father, I know him, I'm from him, he sent me. And they're just thinking, we, we want him dead now. And yet, they couldn't lay a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Turn with me for a moment to the, the book of Psalm, Psalm 91. But keep your finger there in the Gospel of John. In Psalm 91, in verse 1, it says, He who... Psalm 91.1, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. What an incredible passage that is. I mean, you, you, you think of, it's not just Christ's hour has not yet come, but God's speaking to us in the in Psalm 91, looking at this, saying, don't be afraid of the terror by night. Be afraid of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness or at Disneyland. Don't be afraid of it, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. There could be a thousand people that fall by your side. There could be 10,000 that fall right there at your right hand. But it shall not come near you unless God wills for it to come near you. Unless he wills for it to come near you. It's radical. To think of the God that we serve, that people could want to kill him, to lay hands on him, to put him to death, but they cannot touch him unless it is God's will for them to touch him at that time. They can't. think of sections of scripture like this and it just it gives me just great confidence in in my God no wonder we can have joy in the midst of trials no wonder we can have a view that says we know and we know that all things work together for good to those who love him and who are the called according to his purpose as believers, we know that he will work all things together for good. A thousand people could fall at our side, even 10,000 at our right hand. But unless it's God's will, it will not come near you. 
In verse 31, if you go back with me to the Gospel of John, it says here, And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? Will he do more signs than these? When these people are looking at him, is he the Messiah? Is he the Christ? And they're thinking, okay, but let's think of what it would be like if if Christ does come. What will it look like? I mean, we know where he's from. We know he comes from Joseph and Mary and from Bethlehem. But what kind of signs would the real Christ do? I mean, you, you have Jesus... Making blind people able to see, making lame people able to walk, multiplying fish and loaves, multiplying wine, making it so people, people who were bound to, to a bed for 38 years are made well, speaking like nobody else had ever spoken before. You go on and you see as, as, as Christ ministers, he, he raises people from the dead. He takes people who have withered hands and make them, he makes them whole. He, he goes and, and walks on water and calms storms. And these people are looking, going like, okay, so when the real one comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? What's it going to be like when the real Messiah comes? And they're saying this, saying, who could do more signs than this man? Well, the Pharisees hear the crowd saying these things. They heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. They're there and they hear the people saying, look at the signs. This has to be the Messiah. And they say, get the officers and go take him. We'll get to this later on, but just look at what happens with this. If you just look a few verses further from our text this morning to verse 40, to John seven forty-five. So these officers go to take Christ. And it says, And the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? These guys go, hey, we're supposed to take him. And they're going and they're trying to find a window, an opening to be able to take him. If they come back, we're not taking him. Why? No one ever spoke like this man before. It's not just the miracles. Nobody ever talked like him before. We're not going to take him. And here's the, the pride of the, the religious leaders just saying, are you also deceived? Have you seen any of us rulers? Have you seen any of us Pharisees believe in him? I mean, if we don't, you shouldn't. Are you deceived as well? And they're just like, oh, we're not taking him. No one spoke like this before. Well, verse 33 says, Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him. Who sent me? Again, Christ is in total control here. A little while longer. I'll be with you a little while longer, and then I'm going to go to him who sent me. And we know that that took place six months later. I'm going to, I'm going to be with you here a little while longer, and then I'm going to go. 
verse 34, it says, Jesus says, you will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. This passage is important for us to think about. Our little church, 10 years ago, when we started, at least for the first several years, I would show up to church and I could look out and I knew everybody. If there was someone new that thought that they were going to the Vietnamese church and showed up to our church, <laughs> I knew who they were. They were Vietnamese and they didn't understand me. But they, we knew who they were. There was two churches that met at our location, so we got confused people sometimes. He looks like he's could be Vietnamese. <laughs> but we knew. We knew when new people came, and yet I was walking into church this morning thinking, there's people I don't know. Um, we're thankful to have you here this morning. But to think, it's not just those that we know or those maybe that we don't know, but all of us here this same verse could apply to us that there could come a time where we seek him and not find him. And where he's going, we can't go. In Luke chapter 13 and verse 23, someone says to Jesus, Lord, are there few who are saved? And Jesus said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you. Where are you from? And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And then he'll say, I tell you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. Um, Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. To read a passage like, You'll seek me and not find me. It means that there comes a place where there is no longer that opportunity to find him. Specifically upon your, your death. But also to know scripture makes it clear that there could be just this hardness of heart that comes to where you just don't know him. And you don't want to know him. And your heart becomes harder and harder. Tasha's grandma passed away this last week and someone's my mother-in-law's mom. And we, we were there at her bedside just maybe a few hours before she passed away, reading Scripture to her, praying with her, rehearsing to her the gospel and, and how there is a way not to be afraid. And 
Yet not everybody has an opportunity like at that time to really think about, do, do I know that I know that I know that I'm going to heaven? How many people just don't have any kind of deathbed experience where they're able to sit there and just think about what's on the other side? And Jesus lovingly speaking to this entire group, knowing that many of those people he will never see again in the sense of he sees them now, but they've come for this particular feast and they'll leave. And he's speaking to them in this particular temple, but knowing that the next time that they'll see him will be at the great white throne of judgment. And he's saying to them, you'll seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. In verse 35, it says, And the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and to teach the Greeks? They're so spiritually blinded that they have no idea that Jesus is going to his Father who is in heaven. They assume Jesus is going to leave this area of Judea, that he's going to go to the dispersion, to the Jews that are outside of this area of Palestine. And are you going to go and try to convince them? Or are you going to go and are you going to try to teach the Greeks? Are you going to go to the Gentiles? Not knowing that that was going to take place and that Jesus was going to draw all men unto himself, even to the uttermost parts of the world. They go on in verse 36 to say, what is this thing that he said, you will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come? I pray that the Holy Spirit in his kindness would just do a work in people's hearts this morning of those that maybe are here, but they are yet to believe and place their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, that today would be the day of salvation for you, that never would that day come where you want to seek him, but you cannot go, you cannot find him. You're here for a reason this morning by a God who is sovereign and who is in control, and he wants you to know that that when he died on that cross, your sins, our sins, were placed upon him. His righteousness placed on our account where he tells us, whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. It's not a salvation that comes by works. It's a salvation that comes through faith. By faith in Christ, it comes by grace from God. Whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. To know that and to think, today can be the day of salvation for me to where I know where I'm going. I'm with him. I'm going with him. Our section closes where it says, on the last day, verse 37, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Picture this. He's there. It's the last day of the feast. And it tells us he stands up and he cries out. It matters to him. He cries out to this multitude of people that are there at the temple. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
If there's anybody that's here that thirsts, come to me and drink. The creator of this universe saying that to this multitude of people and saying that to us here this morning. From there he says, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But he spoke concerning the Spirit from those believe, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. It's the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The people are reminded of different things that took place during this particular feast, of God's faithfulness to his people. And this particular moment, they're remembering when God provided water for them in the desert. When Moses struck the, the rock and water poured forth out, the priests would go and they would go outside to the pool of Salome, and they would fill these golden pitchers with water. And they would come back and they would march around the altar seven times. And then they'd raise up this, this golden pitcher and the people would say, raise it higher. And they would raise it up and then the people would feel like they were so blessed they got to see that water pour out from that golden pitcher. So this is where we're at. And Jesus hears all of this and knows what's taking place. The water is being poured onto the altar. This picture of the water coming from the rock. And he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Come to me and drink. He who believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You think of Jesus just in, in chapter 4 of John where he says, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Drink from me. You'll have a, a fountain that will come out that will spring up. It's everlasting life that will come. Drink from me. Think of the picture that is here. They're, they're there and they're, and they're remembering the rock and they're remembering the rock being struck. We, we, we think of, of there in Exodus 17 where the people are, are commanded to go to Rephidim and, and, and they're there and there's no water for their people to drink. They're there at this particular place. God commands them to go to this place and there's no water for them to drink and they're thirsty. Dying of thirst, like Jill in the book. And they're thirsty. They start complaining. Give us water, they say, that we may drink. Moses says, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? The people, and the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses, said, Why is it that you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Moses cries out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? For they're almost ready to stone me. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and also take in your hand your, your rod in which you struck the river and go, behold, I'll stand before you there on the rock in Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it and that the people may drink. So Moses did in the sight of all the elders of Israel. He goes up there and he takes his rod and he strikes a rock and water just comes pouring forth out of that rock. Look and enjoy this. When you go out of our parking lot, you'll look in the middle. There's a rock, and it's split because that's where the rod went through, and there's water that pours forth, and don't drink it. Um, (laughs) But it's there. It's there to be a picture of what God did for his people, but even more so, it is there to be a picture for us of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 10, 1, it says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank of the same spiritual rock or same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. God tells us that rock that was struck there, that was Christ. That was a picture of Christ. When he struck the rock and water came pouring out, when the rock was smitten and the water came pouring out, that rock was Christ. When God told the people, go to this area, camp there. Go to Rephidim, camp there because there's no water there at all and they're thirsting and they're dying of thirst and they're complaining and God says, I brought them there to a place where there's no water because I want them to come to a place where they just, they want water more than anything and then I'm going to tell them to smite this rock and water is going to come pouring forth and then they're going to drink and they're going to be satisfied and they're going to know that I am the one that can provide that water that can make it so they don't thirst anymore and it's all pointing to that rock which is Christ who is to come. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, David said in 2 Samuel 22.2. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. He's our rock. Isaiah 53.4. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes were healed. The the rock that was struck was Christ. And the, the smiting of that rock there refers to it in Isaiah 53. It being smitten by God. It's being smitten by God in, when Christ died upon that cross. You, you think of that rod and that rod's used to, to make water turn to blood. And that, that, that rod's used in, as, a, as a sense of judgment. It's used as judgment by Moses. And here is the rock being smitten by it. And here is Christ being smitten by it. The judgment of God coming upon Christ so that water can pour forth out of him that would make it so that we would never thirst again, everlasting life that would come. I I think it's radical too when you look at Numbers 20 where the people are again in a place where they're thirsty and and God goes to them and, and God says, speak to the rock before their eyes and it will yield its water. And thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock. And give drink to the congregation and the animals. Speak to the rock. Just speak to it. Go to the rock and just speak to it. So that water comes forward. And what does he do? He doesn't speak to it. He goes and he hits, takes it with the rod and hits it again. But because he didn't speak to it, 
We're told that Moses, God said, because you did not believe me to hollow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Because you, you hit the rock, because you, the rock was smitten again by you with that rod again, when I told you just to speak to the rock, now you who have dealt with these horrific people and have gone and, and spent 40 years in the desert, you can't go into the promised land because you hit the rock and you didn't speak to the rock. Why would God care? How, how come God went just like, well, yeah, he, I understand. I mean, like, it worked the first time, and, you know, like, it, it was dramatic. Of course he's going to hit it again. But God's saying, no. You, you didn't. You hit the rock. You're supposed to speak to the rock. But you hit it. You can't go into the promised land. Why? Because the rock was never to be smitten twice. Christ was never to be smitten twice. You look and you see even the word in Numbers 20, the Hebrew word for rock, was a rock that was elevated. It's a different word than the rock that's used in Exodus. This is a rock that's elevated. It's a picture of of Christ after the resurrection. But that rock was never to be smitten twice. Romans 6, 8, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. It was never to be hit twice. The rock has been smitten, and it was smitten in Christ. The payment, the judgment that we deserve was placed upon him so that we could drink from him Water that would make it so that we would never, ever, ever thirst again. Ever. And it says, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. But the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. As that rock was smitten, what came out was the Holy Spirit that would radically change our lives, bringing us to salvation, making it so that we would never thirst again for anything. Pink says, If a poor sinner is convicted of his pollution and desires cleansing, if he's weighted down with the awful burden of a conscious guilt and desires pardon, if he's fully aware of his weakness and impotency and longs for strength and deliverance, if he's filled with fears and distrust and craves for peace and rest, then, says Christ, let him come unto me. He goes on to say, To come to Christ means that you... Do with your heart and will what you would do with your feet where he's standing in bodily form before you and saying, come unto me. It's an act of faith. It intimates that you have turned your back upon the world and you've abandoned all confidence in everything about yourself and now you've cast your empty-handed, and now cast yourself empty-handed at the feet of the incarnate grace and truth. But make sure that nothing whatsoever is substituted for Christ. It is not come to the Lord's table or come to the waters of baptism or come to the priest or minister or come and join the church, but come to Christ himself and to none other. Come to him. Come to him. And that's the invitation that's given to us this morning. Come to him. Come to him. The words of our Lord, come. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Come. 
come to him. And I pray that we as God's people would just find so much joy in coming to him and drinking from him and having our thirst quenched to where there's none in all the world that we desire besides him. Amen. Let's pray and then we'll take part in communion. Lord God, we thank you for our time here this morning. The glorious text before us. You there as the lion of the tribe of Judah, totally in control of all things, yet saying, there is no other stream. There's nowhere else that you can go. A lion who can devour, and yet you say, come and drink, come and drink, come. God, you know everybody here. You know those who have come to you and have drank from you, who have believed by faith in your work on the cross to forgive them of their sins. And you know those that are still standing there, not wanting to come, not wanting to draw near to the lion, but staying far away. And yet there's only one river. May today be the day that they hear you just say, come, come and drink. Today is your day of salvation. Come, believe upon him who died on the cross and rose again on the third day that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, today, may today be the day in which you save any who are in our congregation who are yet to know you. Be exalted now as we partake in communion. May all that is within us praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.